Good morning. I always expect the guitar solo to come in. Anyway, don't worry about it. I am Pastor Mike, and this is week six of More and More, our series on the book of Philippians. And this morning, we're going to enter into chapter three, which is one of my all-time favorite chapters of the New Testament. But first, I am pulling a Pastor Scott, which means that I'm going to ruin the day of two volunteers in this community. In particular, I need two super fans, one of UF, who I've already identified. Bailey, if you can come on up here. And one of FSU. And I know there's a lot of y'all, so who wants to be the representative of FSU? Come on now. Come on up. Come on up. <laughs> if you aren't going to volunteer, you're going to get called on. Come on on stage. Come on. Get one over here. Because this is going to be like a face-off kind of situation. So I want you all to be able to see each other. I want you to look each other's eyes. Okay. Uh, here's what I need you to do. Imagine this Seminole fan. He thinks Tebow's a chump. He thinks Jameis was a better college quarterback, which is a garbage take. Just absolutely garbage take. He is giggling because they're somehow better at basketball than we are now, which is a nightmare. And he's making fun of Urban Meyer and talking about how ugly orange and blue are as colors. Do you have that in your mind? How do you feel about him? Yeah, that's what I thought. Meh. Now you. Imagine this Gator fan here. Uh, she thinks she's smarter than you. She thinks that, uh, well, she calls UF the Harvard of the South. Yeah, she, uh, she thinks that you only go for FSU because you couldn't get into UF. Um, and you don't want to talk about football because she knows your record, your terrible record, better than you do at this point. And uh, she has all the hits, criminals, crab legs, the whole shebang. How do you all feel about each other right now? Yeah, she's all right, okay. <laughs> We're in Christian company, so we don't want to be honest. Like, it's not great, right? Not great. Okay. So, Seminole fans. Every Seminole fan in the room, stand up. Okay. Gator fan. If they suddenly moved towards us, would you feel safe or threatened? All at once, just rushed towards us. Yeah, not threatened, right? <laughs> Certainly not safe. I'm a Gator fan. Tebow rules. I got you. Between me and all of these people standing, who would you want me to give this sword to? Not them. That is the correct answer. <laughs> FSU fan. If I picked her over you every single time I made a or beneficial decision for this church, would you assume that had nothing to do with your FSU identity? No. no. You would assume bias, right? Which makes a lot of sense. Okay, that's it, actually. Can you give them a round of applause? Yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming up. Does anyone want the sword? No. Okay. Yeah, not the UF fan, right? I saw y'all. Awesome. 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 So what's that all about, right? Well, I wanted to highlight with a very low stakes example, how we as human beings are quite simply wired for tribalism to, without even thinking it most of the time, create and act according to group identities based on shared commonalities, which we then use to define ourselves as in or out. Those like us are in, those who are not like us are outsiders. We form tribes. You guys following me? We do this all the time. 
And these group identities are actually quite powerful, even in frivolous examples like football, which I know in this town people are offended that I even said that. But it is frivolous. It's a kid's game. That, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> despite that, even in these small stakes examples, they impact our actions and our attitudes, do they not? We like, feel more comfortable around, and help those in our group more. It feels more natural to do so, while feeling a little bit more distaste, discomfort, or even acting negatively according towards those we consider outsiders, especially if we perceive them as opposing our group, University of Florida Go Gators. And it's clear here, because fandom is obviously ripe for tribalism, but I think this plays out in literally all that we do as human beings. Just think about it, Democrat versus Republican. You probably identify as one of those groups, and you probably have thoughts about the other group, whether you know them or not. Catholic versus Protestant. American versus Russian. Star Wars versus Star Trek. I know Rory has thoughts. There's infinite examples. We form groups, ground our identity in belonging to them, and then act accordingly, often benefiting us over them. It's really gross if you think about it, but it's part of our human condition, and we can't shy away from it. This is an impulse that takes place within us. I actually mentioned this years ago in a sermon, but there's a study that captures this phenomenon called the minimal group paradigm experiment. It was an experiment created by Henry Tajfel, who was a Jewish scholar who lost everything in the Holocaust. And afterwards, he became obsessed with the concept of group identity and how it leads us to do horrible things to other people. And what he did is he formed this study which sought to identify the lowest point at which group identity forms and begins to negatively impact human behavior. He asked 64 kids to guess the number of dots on a screen before separating them into two groups, one based on who underestimated the correct total and one based on who overestimated it. But here's the kicker. The groups were actually chosen at random. It had nothing to do with the numbers they guessed. And then the participants were given money to split amongst all the participants, only knowing each other person's name and which fake dot guessing group that they belonged to. Remember, his goal was to find like a baseline for where human beings begin to form tribes. But guess what? Immediately, the participants began assigning more money to those in their group and less to those in the other. They would even do this if it cost them in the long run, but hurt the other group more. What I'm trying to get at is Henry hoped to find that lowest possible line for tribal formation and instead discovered that it formed so quickly and over such nonsensical commonalities that there was not a line low enough for human beings to start separating themselves and letting that drive their behavior. Even arbitrary, fake perceived differences triggered humans to form tribes and favor their group at the expense of others. Now, replace fake dot guessing with politics, religion, culture, race, power dynamics, money. What happens? Y'all, just look at history, right? Look at history. 
tribalism, this part of our human condition has broken our world, has it not? Has it not? And that's why we shouldn't be surprised that Paul's going to address this in the book of Philippians. In fact, it is the focus, the overarching theme of chapter 3, which we're going to spend two weeks covering. Specifically, what we're going to see is that Paul focuses on what happens when we as Christians let tribalism bleed into the church and the gospel, which he thinks is a grave error. It's something he takes very seriously, as we're going to see. And we're just going to dive in. We pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul urges the Philippians to watch out for these folks who he describes quite harshly. And just to let you guys in, he's actually referencing a specific group of Christians that appear throughout the New Testament in Paul's letters. It's this group called the Judaizers. And it's a constant thorn in Paul's sign over his missionary journeys. You see, Paul traveled the Roman Empire, planting churches and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which for him boiled down to several core essentials. First, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord of your life, not Caesar, not any other human being. That's the first essential. Second, through Christ's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, sins are forgiven, evil is defeated, and death has been conquered. And then third, By God's grace, everyone's invited into his eternal kingdom, into a restored relationship with God, creation, and other human beings, and transformed living that comes out of that. Now, Paul had many other beliefs, strong beliefs even, but these were the essentials of the gospel for him. These were the lines that were not to be crossed. These were the the foundation of the Christian faith. However, What we'll see is that repeatedly, over and over again in the New Testament, is that Paul would leave one of these new communities that he planted, and the Judaizers would swoop in and begin undermining that essential message. Essentially, they would start declaring that Gentiles or non-Jewish Christians needed more than just faith in Jesus as Lord to enter the kingdom of God. They actually also had to adopt the cultural identity markers of Old Testament Judaism, especially circumcision, which was a big cultural barrier for a Gentile. You can kind of understand why if you know what circumcision is, right? If you weren't practicing that and someone came in and they're like, actually, to follow Jesus, you got to do this, you'd be a little weirded out, would you not? Awkward laugh. Okay. But this was a big deal, Right? They were imposing this and saying this is a gospel essential. And in fact, this debate created such a huge conflict in the early church that we see in Acts 15 that the church's leadership had to step in and ultimately put this issue to bed. And ultimately, they ruled against the Judaizers, declaring that Gentiles didn't need to become culturally Jewish to join God's people. In other words, they didn't restrict Jewish Christians from following Jewish customs or the Jewish law. They simply freed Gentiles from having to do so also as a basis for entering the church. 
upholding the gospel essentials while preventing any one cultural group from establishing their specific non-essential practices as universal standards for Christianity. Huzzah, right? That's a good thing. But do you guys think the Judaizers stopped? No, they did not. They continued following behind and undermining Paul, and that is critical for understanding this passage. Paul's not upset that Jewish Christians follow Jewish practices. That's ridiculous. Paul was Jewish. Paul's upset. He's furious because they're imposing their tribal identities onto others in the name of Jesus. Elevating cultural, non-essentials to the level of gospel essentials, which they're doing again with the Philippians while Paul's in prison. And he comes down hard. He uses these three loaded terms. First, he calls them dogs. Now, in the ancient world, dogs were not lovable pets. They were scavengers who ate filth. They ate trash. In other words, those trying to make others holy through tribalism are acting with more unholiness than anyone, according to Paul. Second, he calls them evildoers, which essentially means people who are absolutely opposed to Jesus' story. And then third, he calls them mutilators of the flesh, which is a play on circumcision, people who violently impose their beliefs onto others in the name of God. Now notice what Paul does not do here. Paul does not give us a list of people's names. He's not like, Joe, Bill, Bob, these jerks, these mutilators, these dogs, right? No, Paul doesn't direct his barrage at individuals. Rather, he's targeting what's underneath their beliefs. He's targeting the tribalistic vision of Christianity beneath their teachings with all its toxic ideas and power dynamics that exclude people from God's grace. For Paul... What I'm trying to get at is this goes beyond the specific individuals involved. It's more fundamental in its divide. It's a fundamental divide about the gospel between Christian spirituality that puts confidence in what Paul calls faith versus putting confidence in what he calls here the flesh. And these are two fascinating ideas. So first, faith. Faith for Paul simply means trust. Trusting that Christ is Lord, that by God's grace, sins are forgiven, evil's defeated, death is conquered, and everyone's invited into God's kingdom. For Paul, trust in that story is what Christianity's all about. That's the foundational essential of our faith. But flesh, or sarx as it is in Greek, is very different. And this word gets people all caught up. It gets people really confused. Sarks does not mean our skin. It's not talking about our physical bodies. No, Paul uses this word flesh for something much deeper. It's this part of our human nature that we would today call our ego. The part of us shaped by worldly identities and defined by a couple of things. Comparison, separation, and above all, self-centeredness that sinful part of us that wants to be superior, dominant, more valuable than other human beings. That small, narcissistic self that's obsessed with human strength, perception, status, 
power that's focused on me, 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 and thus loves tribal lines because in those I am in and you are out, which means that I am more important and more dignified than you are. And my ego loves feeling that way. Are y'all following me? That's the flesh. That's what Paul's trying to get in mind. It's more of a way of being than talking about this fleshy body. So Paul's asking, what is the gospel fundamentally about? Is it about putting our confidence in human ego and human effort to fix and heal and save ourselves? Or is it about putting our confidence for those things in a power greater than ourselves? Something bigger than our egos, something bigger than our mortal human efforts. And to answer that question, Paul does something really interesting, kind of snarky, really. And that is he picks up this ego perspective and he uses it to weigh his own story. We see in verse four, he writes, I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, Paul says, hey, if spirituality is about ego, group identity, human effort, y'all, I should have the most confidence. I am the bomb, right? First, he goes through his birthrights, the things that he didn't pick, the things that were given to him. He's like, I was circumcised at the earliest time. I'm fully Jewish by heritage. I know my tribe. I'm the most Hebrew of all Hebrews, baby. And then he goes through his choices, these decisions that he made with his will in the past. He's like, I was a Pharisee who was blameless in following the Jewish law. And I was zealous, which is a strong religious term. It means being so obedient to God's law that nothing is too extreme, which if you read your New Testament, you know is true. Paul in his old life murdered another Christian in the name of God just for preaching that Christ is Lord. Paul's like, I was zealous and I acted upon my faith. Again, what's Paul saying? He's saying, you want to measure Christianity by ego metrics? Y'all, I will win every single time. Which sounds a little arrogant, but he's actually setting up, I think, an awesome point. Verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, which is actually a bit of a vulgar word in Greek. Not gonna say what it might mean today. Use your brains. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Mm. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And y'all, this is, I think, the most powerful succinct description of healthy Christianity that there is. 
Using the language of business accounting, Paul says that whole list, everything that was valuable in my old ego business of life, legalism, tribalism, cultural success, comparison, superiority in Christ, I now see it all as garbage, not just as trash, but actually as a loss, not a profit in my ledger. You see, Jesus turned upside down what mattered to Paul. His old ego metrics, they mattered because they advantaged him. They separated him. They made him look superior to others. They made him feel superior to others. And Paul lived for such things. These ego virtues drove every decision he made. And then he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. The incarnate, suffering, crucified, and resurrected king. And suddenly... In a flash, when compared to the glory of Christ's love and grace, those measuring stacks that use the world's currency were proven utterly meaningless, impermanent, shadows of the real thing. In a flash, such desires and goals suddenly seemed ludicrous to Paul because they were revealed as toxic, germ-carrying trash, barriers to experiencing what his life was actually always meant to be about, Christ and his kingdom. So Paul's like, you want ego garbage? Rummage through mine. Take it. Here's the whole list. I don't need it anymore. I've found something real. The life that comes from knowing and finding myself fully in Christ and his story of self-sacrificial love, resurrection power, humble servanthood, an unmerited grace. That's all that matters to me now, Paul says. And anything that gets in its way has to go because it's just not worth the treasure that I've found. It's a beautiful sentiment, is it not? And with that, Paul closes in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And y'all, this imagery is beautiful. In the Greek, it's like Paul is reaching towards Christ and Christ is reaching towards him at the same time. It's like a parent reaching down to pick up their child while the child reaches up to wrap their arms around the parent and pull themselves closer simultaneously. Paul's like, that's it. That's the gospel. That embrace of a parent and a child, and that has nothing to do with ego or human effort, does it? That's just God loving us, embracing us, and us surrendering to his touch. And Paul says, stay focused on that. That's the essential message. Stay focused on it. Like a runner who looks only forward with each next step. Thus Paul forgets his past, who he was, past failures, privileges. He throws those in the trash because his life isn't about ego anymore. It's only about falling more and more into Jesus's embrace. And in that, the past is only useful in how it instructs the present and how it helps me know and become more like my King, Jesus, here and now. 
If it isn't helping me do that, then it has to go. That's powerful. I think that's beautiful. Does anyone else think that's beautiful? And that personally, I mean, the scripture hit me this week. And I felt it speak to me in really three key ways. I think first is pretty simple. I think it's just a beautiful image of Christ. The son of God who became incarnate, served, suffered, died, rose, and now reigns can be known intimately by all. You, me, the great, the lowly, the poor, the rich, the Jew, the Gentile, everybody has free access to the embrace of our king. And Paul believes that embracing that journey that embrace should change us forever. How could it not? I think second, I found this incredibly challenging concerning our value and where we try to find our identity in this life. You see, human effort isn't bad. That's not what Paul is getting at. In fact, I think human effort is good for great many things, just not everything. For example, I've got egometrics for my past and my present, that I can hang my hat on. I have worked hard in this life. I'm a half-decent preacher, and I'm pretty good at running a food pantry. I think I'm smart. I excelled in school, excelled in seminary. And y'all, I know a lot about the Bible, probably too much, if I'm being honest. And not only that, I co-provide for my family. My children don't go hungry. My wife and I both work hard to make sure that our home is stable. And these things are good. I think these are good parts of my story. I don't think Paul is telling me that that is garbage in and of itself. And you all have your own list, right? You probably can identify good things that you were born into or that you created with the work of your hands. But you know what also is true for everybody? There's one or two things on your list and my list that at some point we've started trusting to give us identity, value, and even salvation in times of trouble. That we've made essential foundations of our lives. And what Paul experienced, what everyone will eventually experience, is that this life will painfully disabuse you of such notions as being reality. For Paul, that came on the road to Damascus. For me, it came through rock bottom of addiction, it came through death, and it came from the birth of my children. Inevitably, life gives us something that our ego cannot cope with or deal with or fix or save us from. Illness, failure, divorce, death. Something unexpected that reveals that as a source of our ultimate confidence, hope, worth, identity, trust, salvation, our ego and what it's concerned with are simply too unstable, and impermanent to be a foundation in the storms of this life. That though good, these human things, individual or cultural, will fail us in the moments where we need to be healed, fixed, or saved. And thus Paul's right. When I put my confidence and trust in such things to fix, to heal, to save me, when such things become barriers to knowing Christ, to loving God and neighbor, to knowing and becoming more like Jesus, when I turn God's gifts into ego garbage, then I am in grave, grave, grave danger. They will fail me. And in such moments, the only way I'm gonna find health and wholeness 
is invite. Change my posture towards them. Surrender them and become willing to throw them away. That's it. I must lay them down if I want to find a power greater than myself, if I want to heal. And y'all, that's hard. As someone who has watched those things fail me in the trials of this life, that is hard. It will always feel like dying. But therein lies the good news. Because what Paul believes fully is that through Christ, that ego death can be redeemed as something good. That it can become what awakens us to realize that it's all grace. That it can be the thing that pushes us to reorient our posture towards these things and transform our relationship to them in a healthy way. That I can become willing through that ego death to hold these gifts open-handedly, cherishing them for what they are, but putting my ultimate confidence in a foundation that can actually carry it. Not my wife, not my children, not my money, not my job, in my resurrected king. And he is the only one with the shoulders to carry that weight. And that is good news. And that changes everything. It really does. And finally, the last thing that hit me this week spoke to us as a community. Because I think this is just an important reminder. It's an important warning against turning non-essentials into gospel essentials. Tribalisms baked into our human condition. Thus, we must regularly reflect on where it seeps into our community, consciously or not. Where we've added personal preferences or cultural values to the gospel that we exist to invite people into. Jesus is Lord, sins are forgiven, evil defeated, death conquered, and by God's grace and love, everyone's invited in and experience new life in Christ. That is it. And we can believe all sorts of other things. Y'all, we can debate over every non-essential. I will try to change your mind if I disagree with you. But the moment that such things, theological, cultural, political, social, economic, or whatever else, the moment we elevate these to gospel essentials, then we are in danger as a church. We are off course. We must lay them down. If people hear about needing to do or be anything before they hear about the grace and love of God, then we have added to the gospel of Christ. If we're a tribal echo chamber where everyone must look, think, and act the same way to belong, then we have missed the kingdom of God. If we are defined by and obsessed with worldly ego measuring sticks, division, exclusion, resentment, power, status, wealth, control, then we have become dogs rolling in garbage, thinking we're holy. And that is not who we are called to be, y'all. In Christ, we are called to transcend petty rivalry and tribalism to shine before a watching world as a pocket of renewed, liberated, Christ-like people willing, willing, willing to witness to one truth more and more with their lives that Christ is Lord. And all are invited into his kingdom of love, mercy, and grace. That's our gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. And I want to be a community that lives to proclaim that gospel to a world that needs it. Who else is with me? Can I get an amen? That's good news. So, let's rise, let's sing together, let's go out into the world.
proclaiming that gospel to a world that desperately needs.